I mean, it's and truly, it's almost, it's almost a deadening of, you know, the, the, the major ups and downs in life. If you come from a world where you're, you're not surprised to see a master caution light and an engine fire light and a hydraulic failure and a blah, 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 all these compounding issues, <laughs> you know, like if that's, if that's not going to change your pulse rate, then, then neither does the, the, you know, I think you have a 10 year old tumor growing in your cone. You're like, okay, dude, we're going to figure this thing out. Welcome to the Blaze and Bush podcast. I'm Jeff Bush, and along with my co-host Jim Blaze, we are here to share with you authentic stories of God's extraordinary revelation in ordinary lives. Our hope is that like Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, you may encounter the Lord through these humble experiences. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. This is Jeff Bush, and along with Jim Blaze, we're excited to bring you the latest episode of the Blaze and Bush podcast. Jim, we've got on today an amazing guest, and it's a guest that you know I'm literally sitting on the edge of my seat in excitement for. Today, we have with us Robert Cujo Teschner, a retired Air Force pilot who flew F-15 Eagle and F-22 Raptors. Rob went to Fighter Weapons School, which is the Air Force's version of the Top Gun program. He was not only a pilot, but also became a teacher. Rob's career happened to dramatically be interrupted by a diagnosis of colorectal cancer. Today, Rob is a cancer survivor. He is the founder and CEO of the VMAX Group, which teaches high-performing teamwork as practiced by America's fighter squadrons. He is also the author of Debrief to Win, How America's Top Guns Practice Accountable Leadership. Most importantly, Rob is a loving Christian, husband, father of five, who all reside right here with Jim and I in St. Louis, Missouri. So Rob, welcome to the podcast. Hey Jeff, thank you so much for having me. Jim, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the very kind introduction, and uh, oh my gosh, I applaud you guys and the great work that you're doing in the podcast space. Uh, congratulations on everything that you've been able to achieve here, especially recently. It's 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 phenomenal. Rob, as as Jeff mentioned, I've known you a few years, and but we've never had the opportunity to kind of uh, sit down and go through some of your background. I've gotten to know you as a person, but not some of your history. In addition to what Jeff has said, maybe give us a little bit of where you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll begin by saying that that part is um, it's just a tad awkward for me. The background that I come from, I was very, very blessed to have been a part of. It defines who it is that I am today, but it's not something that I, in a, you know, in a normal context outside of the business world, um, make a big deal about, um, you know, I, I kind of downplay it a little bit for a number of different reasons. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful for it, but it's, it's, you know, I, I just, I just don't make, I just don't make it the central point of my conversations, which is why Jim, you and I really have never spoken of, of this before. That said, um, as a young boy, I, I was always fascinated with airplanes and I absolutely loved fighter aircraft. And when Top Gun came out, like 1986 that sealed the deal for me that this was a path that I, I needed to be on and so I started to pursue it and the very short story of my background is I got a chance to live my dream 
I was able to go to the United States Air Force Academy, which set me up uh, to get a pilot slot in the Air Force. I uh, graduated high enough to be able to pick a fighter aircraft. I picked the F-15. I did well because I was coached and trained by a bunch of really, really good leaders who saw potential in a young, scrawny, non-athletic dude named Rob. And, uh, and they molded me and fashioned me into um, a really, a really good fighter pilot. And, and that set me on a path towards the fighter weapons school. Um, okay. I was lucky enough to be able to do well there. And I got invited back to be an instructor. That led to commanding an operational F-22 squadron down the road. Um, in the midst of that, I had some, some combat experience flying over the skies of Iraq. Um, you know, and I went to school, did some staff assignments. Uh, and then before you know it, it was almost like snap of the fingers and it was done. And, you know, transitioned out and moved to a place that's been on my heart my entire life, St. Louis home of the 11-time world champion St. Louis Cardinals and <laughs> one-time champion St. Louis Blues. I mean, what a great, great year last year was. So anyway, no doubt. He, here we are. But I don't mean to, to dismiss or slight any of the background there. It's just not, it's not something that I usually, uh, you know, jump around uh, touting. Sure. Talk about, obviously, the focus of the Blaze and Bush podcast, as you and I have discussed, is sort of God's place in this, in this journey of life. So talk about like where that was in the process, in the midst of all of that. Absolutely. And now we get into the stuff of substance, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and this is where, and, and every morning, you know, when I, when I do my morning prayers, I'm, I'm so grateful to the good Lord for having blessed me with a foundation of faith that was uh, instilled in me and, and, you know, kind of nurtured within me by my parents. My mom and dad made sure from the very beginning of my life that I recognized that there was more to this life than just doing the things that we do in this life. And, and so I've, you know, I've been a, a practicing Catholic all my life, uh, although to different levels of practice. And that's something that we can talk about. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I know that there's more to it than just going out there and flying high performance fighter aircraft. I know that there's, that there's an end that's much bigger than hanging up your spurs and retiring or, you know, achieving tremendous success or wealth or whatever the case might be. And that all, that all is, um, that all came to me from a background that was centered on practicing our faith, um, in what we did at home, in the way that we lived our lives in how we conducted ourselves and how we held the Sabbath holy, et cetera. Uh, and I'm very, very grateful for that. And that really helped me through the tough phases of life, of which there were plenty in the career. It it affected how it was that I handled some of the more stressful times um, and then how it is that we got through some of the real life challenges that continue to affect us to this day. So faith was a strong foundation in enabling all of the things that that Jeff, you thought were kind of cool in looking at the background. That's awesome. So mm -hmm. as I've been reading your book, I, I recognize in it, it's sort of between the lines, but I recognize it's a path of inserting virtues into really the life of leadership and growth. And so it doesn't talk about it explicitly, but as a person who knows you and a person who's reading your book, you can sort of see it between the lines. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that explicitly. 
Yeah, look, so that's a that's a great point, Jim. And every now and again, somebody comes up to me and says, I've been reading your book, and I see that there's more to it than than the overt. And I that always brings tremendous joy to me, because that's so, so true. Not not because I did anything ingenious, but because the principles that allow for us to to succeed in this world uh, are divinely inspired um, if we're doing if we're living our lives the right way. So if we go back to, you know, kind of the, the humble approach and recognizing that what it is that we have, those are gifts. In my faith journey, I found that I kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit in how I embraced that. And when I was in pilot training, it was probably it was probably my phase of thinking uh, of having ebbed the most and having at one point really thought that I was all that and that mm-hmm. I was, you know, <laughs> I was, you know, I was marching out on my own path and I was succeeding by virtue of my of my hard work. And I was uh, achieving what it is that I had preordained and destined for myself. And I carried that forward for a while. And it wasn't that I didn't appreciate the gifts that the good Lord had given me, but it was that I, I kind of saw myself as having, having had enough self-gumption and oomph to, to do things my way for a while and to realize the fruits of my efforts. And then there was a, then there was a, there was a time of reflection and introspection. And it really hit me kind of later on in my career as I started looking at how it was that I was living my life, where it was that I was focused, what it was that I was pouring my energies into. And it was in that reflective period that I recognized, holy criminy, I have been given so much. And it is not because of me that these things have happened. It is because this was the good Lord's path for me. And I've, I've been on it. And, you know, and, and so I am the tremendous beneficiary of things for which I should be extremely grateful. And that changed my outlook. When I so now we fast forward a number of years, and when I wrote Debrief to Win, I knew that I was writing about an approach to teamwork that would be relevant across so many different domains. It's not just something that you need to apply in business. I would argue, you know, the business application is a secondary effect of applying this in all phases of life. But thinking about thinking about how it is that we live our lives with an eye towards eternity and what it is that we're setting ourselves up for. I mean, that's probably the most important takeaway that I can that I can offer from what it is that I've learned, because if we don't begin with the end in mind, then then we're, we may not be crafting an existence that's worthy of <laughs> of moving forward. And so that's been that kind of reflection has been increasingly on my mind over the past several years, sort of instigated by some of the personal challenges uh, that. I've had that my family's had to share in, but also looking at the fact that we're raising a bunch of young souls to live in this world. And it's our responsibility as parents to instill within them a foundation that will, that will get them to the appropriate end, uh, down the path, whenever that might be. And that's, that's the part that, that my beautiful bride, Diane and I are really, really focused on day in and day out. That's the thing that motivates us the most of anything that we've got going on. And that's the, that's the cause for translating some of these eternal principles into a language that anybody on planet Earth can adopt and then apply wherever they need to, and hopefully increasingly so in the family domain, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. It definitely does. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really remarkable, Rob, to, 
think about the environment that you were operating in. We mentioned the word Top Gun, and so many of the listeners and so many of the folks I'm sure you've talked to are very familiar with the movie Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Let's recognize the fact that that's the Navy as opposed to the Air Force. But I'm sure there's some there's some comparable moments for sure. But when you think about the theme of that movie, it's remarkable to think that these guys were the best of the best. They were all out, in essence, for themselves until the very end of that movie. And that's very similar to what it sounds like you were describing as you were going through the process, going through the programs, becoming the best pilot that you can become. A lot of that, in, as your faith was in this ebbed moment, is relying on your performance. It's relying on your success. It's relying on your talents and your abilities to perform and so on. But to have this revelation where now that you are raising young souls, your hearts, your soul, Diane's soul, your household is being aimed towards eternity. And now living a life that in the past, if I can use the word selfish, I mean, I don't mean to put words in in your mouth, but you had to be selfish in a way to be successful in your occupation. And thank God for that as protectors of this nation from, from a service standpoint. But the fact that now you can lead a household aimed towards heaven and have the clarity to say, I'm in a position to surrender myself to the Lord, and I'm in a position to surrender myself to benefiting my wife and to benefiting my children and to put your secular desires aside. Man, that's just, it's just incredible to go from one extreme to the fact that you're surrendering to the Lord and to your, to your children and their souls and their best interests now. Yeah. So Jeff, so much there. And I completely agree with you. Um, you know, I, I would start with, if you take a look at the storyline in Top Gun, um, you know, it's not a, it's not certainly not a love story. It's, it's not about, it's not about, um, airplanes per se. It's really the transition of a solo operator into a team player. It's the transition of a guy whose call sign reflects how it is that he views the world you know, this maverick, um, transitioning from I'm in it for me. I've, I've got a chip on my shoulder. I've got issues with the way that the Navy's treated my family to, I won't leave my wingman. Mutual support is the number one dynamic here. And together we can accomplish everything, which is a fantastic storyline across so many different levels. And that's something that, um, you know, when I go and I talk specifically, because people are always talking about the movie especially with the second one coming out here uh, next June. Um, you know, we emphasize that point because it, it fits it fits in so many different areas. For me, the Maverick piece was definitely there. Um, the understanding that I had to I had to perform at my best in order to have a shot to be a team player, all of that, all that makes sense. But then the same transition took place. It happened pretty early on uh, when I when I transitioned into the F-15 program in that I knew just from a way that we operated that if I tried to be a solo operator in the sky, that was a recipe for disaster needed to be a team player in the sky in order to, in order to survive in the domain that we were in. And so ultimately, if you look at what it is that fighter pilots become, they become extraordinary team players. Um, I think the best equivalent that I could offer, especially in light of the Stanley cup championship is a hockey team 
where you've got a shared consciousness where you can you can you know a player who's zipping down the ice can pass the puck behind themselves because they know either through instinct or through tremendous amounts of practice that the right person is in the right spot for where that puck is to be able to take it and then to put the put the puck on goal and score or whatever is going to happen. Um, we have that same kind of teamwork uh, in the aerial domain. What strikes me as as sad is that we learn these team dynamics and we apply them so well in the business side of the equation, uh, but so often we fail to apply them uh, in other domains and specifically in the family lives. Uh, and so that's kind of the first, that's the first sort of, oh my gosh moment. You know, why wouldn't we cross apply these things? Yeah. And when you look at, and when you look at the team dynamic, you know, the team exists to achieve a degree of performance that would not be, you know, could not be achieved as a solo operator. I think when we organize as family teams, um, one of the, one of the beautiful moments there is, is the opportunity to leverage our combined skills to perform in the way that we're designed to. And if you're looking at it from an eternal perspective, it's to get to heaven. So we ought to use team approaches to help us all stay on the correct path to get to where it is that we aim to be at. And that's that has really been kind of the main takeaway for our family over the last several years as we made as we made the transition into the post-military life. And it was really brought on in my in my world, by my revelation on day four uh, after the cancer diagnosis. So if you don't mind, I'd, I want to hijack a little bit of our time and talk about that because I think... That's for, exactly where I was going to go with it, uh, uh, Rob. So, okay. Yeah, so that works out well. So tell, talk about that. Yeah, there's some shared consciousness for you, Jim. I love it. Okay, <laughs> so, so let me set this thing up for you. Um, the cancer uh, diagnosis came... It was a, it was a shocker. I had some symptoms... Um, back in 2004, when I was just coming back to the, to the weapons school as an instructor that I dismissed, I ignored them. I dismissed them. You know, I was a combat veteran. I was, I was invincible, bulletproof, whatever you want to call it, at least in my, in my own mind. Sure. And I, I never, sh I never shared this fact with anybody that I'd had some really weird personal symptoms. I just kept that to myself, did my own thing. Wasn't a team player outside of my work life. And then a decade later, when the same symptoms came back, I finally told Diane and she was appalled, scared, worried, shocked, asked me to go get it looked into. And, and so I did, we found out um, that I had this tumor growing in my lower colon and the doctor that performed uh, the colonoscopy said, you know, by my estimation, this thing's been growing for a decade. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Now, so this was by the way, 2014 where we have this, <laughs> this diagnosis and if you think back to the original symptoms in 2004, there you have it. I mean, the guy was spot on. Correct. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was a bit, that was a bit of a bummer. And I, you know, I'm, I'm getting this news as I'm waking up from the, um, uh, from the little sleepy time for the colonoscopy. So I, I wasn't fully registering everything initially and it kind of took a little while to sort of resonate with me. But what's really neat about my background is, is that it also didn't cause me to panic. Because, oh sure. You know, I mean, it's and truly it's almost it's almost a deadening of you know the, the the major ups and downs in life. If you come from a world where you're you're not surprised to see a master caution light and an engine fire light and a hydraulic failure and a blah 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 all these compounding <laughs> issues, you know, like if that if that's not going to change your pulse rate, then then neither does the 
the, you know, I think you have a 10 year old tumor growing in your colon. You're like, okay, dude, we're going to figure this thing out. (laughs) You've literally lived an occupation that was full of contingency planning. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I was constantly applying the contingencies, you know, and, and just kind of maintaining aircraft control, analyzing the situation and taking appropriate action and then landing as soon as conditions permit. That's the mnemonic that we apply from pilot training onwards to help us work through the disruption while we're up there flying. And so, you know, it, it's, it wasn't that it wasn't a big deal, but it also wasn't the insurmountable obstacle. Oh my gosh. Until day four. And on day four, I woke, we were in Germany at the time living in a small village called Gatlingen, just outside of Stuttgart. And on day four, I woke up and I went into our basement and I was just overcome with emotion. And I just started bawling. And I'm not typically the guy that, in fact, my, uh, my daughter, Lucy, who's about to turn eight, she told me a couple of days ago that she's never seen me cry. Like, she's like, you never cry, dad. You, you don't. Well, not true. Um, but it's not something that I'm, I just do. So this particular Thursday morning, it stood out in my mind because this was so uncharacteristic of me. And as I was trying to understand why is this happening, two things hit me like tidal waves. They were like back to back tidal waves. The first one was, oh my goodness. My wife is, I don't know. She was like five, five and a half months pregnant at the time, somewhere in that ballpark with our fourth child. We had a bunch of miscarriages throughout our uh, life together. And so I was thinking, this is not good. You know, I mean, this does not, this, if this tumor is 10 years old, then I don't know if I've got days or weeks or months left to live. And if I'm leaving her right now, this is going to be so hard with a baby on the way. And oh my gosh, I just, you know, I was praying that that she and the baby would stay healthy, but I was very concerned about how that would be. The second tidal wave was, oh my goodness, I'm about to face my particular judgment. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like there's a lot of time left potentially to redirect. And, you know, I, I, I led a pretty robust life to this point, son of a gun. And so that was the one-two punch. And it, it came out of nowhere. I wasn't thinking. It wasn't like I was reflecting on this. It just happened. And in that moment, I distinctly remember thinking, all right, Diane's going to be okay. She is a strong person. She's a, she's a woman of faith. Somehow or another, it's going to work. It's going to be hard. There's no doubt about it. But she's got family. There's support networks there. She'll get through it. The kids will get through it. It's not going to be easy, but it'll be accomplished. What I have no control over now is what it is that I've done in my life to this point. That's water under the bridge. It is what it is. And if I'm, if I'm now facing the big guy and reporting in and explaining, you know, all of that, that's, that's potentially a bigger issue. And so I told, I I told myself actually in my prayer at that moment, I said, look, I'm not asking to renegotiate the, the, the terms of our contract. They were perfect to begin with. They're still perfect right now. All I'm doing with you, Lord, is to commit that whatever time I have left, I will use for good. And and this is going to be a worthwhile second half. If the second half is only three minutes long, so be it. If the second half is a full 30 minutes, awesome, or whatever. I'm just going to use this time appropriately. I'm going to try and give you a return on your investment in me that justifies everything that you've done for me. And that that, that kind of became the rallying cry yours truly for us as a family and that's the thing that we're trying to live out as we move forward one thing i just want to share and this is true 
of all three of us that are on this in this conversation is that uh, we have all been blessed with brides who have married well below themselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, no doubt. Um, did you recognize some moment that God was acting in that? Because that is yeah. truly from God. Yeah, there's no doubt that that was truly from God. And and all that I recognized in that moment was that by my own standards of performance and behavior, I was disappointed in myself. And I also recognized that I was a no, I mean, it would be so inappropriate to try and beg for a new deal. Like, hey, if you just give me 10 more years, I promise you that the next 10 will be appropriate. No, 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 no. Right. All the deals were great from the very beginning. And so just, just logically and consistent with my understanding of the faith, um, I just recognized that, you know, the only, the, the only outcome that was appropriate from this was to say, hang on, this is a bit of a wake up call. And, you know, whatever that means, I just need to be faithful moving forward. I can't, you know, I, I can't undo what's been done to this point, but I can make the ending worthwhile. It's kind of a C.S. Lewis uh, yeah, approach right. to, to life there, you know, and, and, and so it just hit me and I said, here we go. And, it, and but I also want to say that the lead in to this whole experience, which happened a couple of years prior, was divinely ordained for me and it put me in a great spot. So a couple of years prior, I was um, I was doing another master's program. And in the master's program, I had an ethics class. And in the ethics class, which I was so blessed to be part of, best best class that I've taken in my entire life in any of the great institutions that I've been in. Uh, in the ethics class, I got to listen to um, peers talk about how they how they'd remained faithful uh, to their values, to their core ethos, even though the environment in which they were in, in so many different ways, kind of pulled them in different directions. They just, they just stayed the course. And I'm listening to this. I'm like, goodness, that's amazing to me because they had every reason to kind of go with the crowd, go with the crowd, go with the crowd. And they, they didn't. I started to examine how it was that I'm applying those principles outside of my secular life in the, in the phase of my life that really matters. I mean, and for some reason it was really important to me to figure this thing out. And I was just looking at the way that I was living my faith at that point. And what I found was it was, it was kind of a checklist faith. I knew that, you know, on, on, on Sunday we went to mass. And so I always made sure that I was at mass on Sunday, but mass on Sunday was something that was part of the process. You know, once mass was done, check, I could now move on to the other things that needed to be done. It wasn't the center of my life. It was one of the things on the checklist. And, and because it was a checklist item and because I was really focused on team performance at work, I had no problems, for example, with going straight back to work on Sunday and then putting in a full day. And I routinely did that. Yeah. I would work seven days a week as a command. So I started to reflect and I'm like, how in the heck can I consider myself to be, you know, a practicing man of faith when I'm not keeping the Lord's day holy? To me, it's just a day like any other day where I'm doing something a little bit additive, I suppose, but only because it's the thing that I know that I need to do. And then I get right back to the things that I want to do or that I feel like I have to do or whatever. And so it was during that master's program that I did a 180 and I said, no more. When I'm working on Sunday, I'm not going to, I'm not going to read courseware on Sundays. I'm not going to do any homework on Sundays. I'm not going to do anything. Sunday is going to be truly the day of rest. It's going to be our family time. And that boosted our family's performance 
so tremendously, you yeah. know? And I, I mean, it was like, it was like a shot in the arm of some energy thing that all of us loved. I mean, we, we had the best Sundays and it had zero negative impact on my courseware, on my coursework. I mean, if anything, you know, the course ended up swimmingly, distinguished graduate, won a writing award, all kinds of great things happened coming out of there. Um, so there was no degradation. That's and awesome. Our family is boosted. And then that led me to say, okay, what else am I not doing? Oh, I'm not teaching. I'm not, I'm not giving back. I'm not helping do faith formation. And so I became an RCIA instructor and I started to do uh, work with second graders on preparing them for first Holy communion. So all of those, all of those steps had already taken place by the time the cancer hit. And it was, it was simply the addition of reflecting about the finality or the, you know, the, the fact that our lives will at some point come to an end. That hit me almost for the first time right there on that Thursday, which then deepened my awareness of the implications of how it is that I'm living my life and then how it is that we as a family are. And that was part of the, part of the joy that comes from this whole story. Oh man, that's, that's, it's, it's remarkable to be a, to be a man of faith, but then still to come to that point of reflection where you are contemplating, you know, your judgment and going, look, I am a man of faith. I, I am participating, you know, in doing the Lord's work while your feet are here on his earthly kingdom. You know, I'm struck by, you know, so many people get complacent. We've talked about the checkbox on Sunday routine. Mm. That in was the past. very, and, very and, convicting for at least one of us in this room. <laughs> 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 you know, but I was, I was thinking about this too. You know, the, you, you delivered us so much to talk about right there in the last couple of minutes of the conversation. But I really want to touch on, on complacency a little bit. And you talk about it in your book, Debrief to Win, about the absence of accountability in so many phases of life. And, and when I think there's a lot of folks that get complacent with their faith and you know, your reflection on judgment was a very real moment of like, look, I, accountability is not going to be any more at the forefront than, than right now. Like those are all of the yeah. things I've done. Those are all the things I'm doing. You're having this moment of look, I need to be proactive with my faith. I have got souls in a house and a wife. We need to be working towards eternity. And I think it's very frustrating when you you meet a lot of people that are like, look, we go to church every Sunday. You know, we pray before meals. You know, like we occasionally say the rosary. Yeah, every couple, you know, every now and again, I, I go yeah. to confession. Yeah. You know, but it's how many of them are really stopping to say like, I do want to debrief on where I'm at in my my faith. Right. Like, yes. am I on my toes? Am I living proactively? And like from a fighter pilot standpoint, I have never sat in the cockpit. You have. I got to imagine complacency as a fighter pilot is one of the worst things you could possibly have. Friend, it's a killer. Okay? I mean, truly, complacency in the fighter domain is a killer. And we're very conscious of that in, uh, in that world. You know, usually about the time that you've got about 500 hours under your belt is where you become dangerous. And oh, the reason wow. is, yeah. And I mean, truly. And, and the reason is, is that you've gotten to the point now where you've overcome the initial hurdles 
all of a sudden this thing seems like it's not only possible, but you're comfortable with it. And, and by the time that you become comfortable with it, the danger is, is that you begin to become complacent. Hey, I don't have to worry about this checklist so much. I've done it a million times. I'm sure I'll do it right over here. I, you know, the new guys have to worry about these kinds of rules. I don't so much because, you know, I, I've been there. I've done it. I've lived through it. I'm fine. And it's not that anybody consciously goes out and says, I'm going to disregard things today. But it becomes something that kind of ekes in a little bit, combined with a little bit of ego, some arrogance. You go, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've got it all figured out. And you can trace back a lot of the accidents to somebody saying, I got it all figured out and then getting a little bit lax in something. And I think that same approach hits anywhere. I talk to business leaders and they talk about complacency and how that affects and creates a degradation in performance. I'm like, okay, if it works in the flying domain, it works in the business domain, why aren't we reflecting on that where it truly matters? And I think, you know, part of it is we're, we're, we're in the midst of a very, tough battle right now you know faith-based approach to life it's kind of cool in certain areas but you're not going to get huge props from from society if you choose to go this path and so it's a lot easier it's really it's truly a lot easier to kind of stay under the radar and and to kind of do some of the things but not necessarily all of them because society is really kind of pulling us in the wrong direction to begin with and it lends itself towards a, <clears throat> hey, I'm doing good enough. I'm doing better than the guys next door. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy with this and I'm complacent. And that's okay. Well, okay. The other thing about being a fighter pilot is we're always demanding excellence of ourselves. Like it's not, even if we find ourselves going through an occasional complacency period, at the end of the day, you know, your superstars are, are, are there because they've been pushing themselves, pushing themselves, demanding excellence, pushing themselves. Well, why aren't we applying that same approach to the other phases of our life? And that's the part where I was disappointed with myself. I'd allowed myself to become complacent in my faith life, which ought to be one of the strongest components of me. I wasn't striving for excellence. I wasn't pushing myself. And so I wasn't applying the same, the same kind of grit and determination that was characterizing my flying world uh, at home. And that was disappointing to me. That was one of the one of the true disappointments. If I'm winning awards for flying, why am I not winning awards in my spiritual life? And, yeah. and then, you know, just, just, let's just, let's just start doing that was kind of the approach at that point. I think the analogy throughout the scriptures, we hear about the spiritual battle that we're in the midst. Our lives are really a spiritual battle. And so I think the analogy really fits between the two circumstances. Hey, it's Jim again. You know, I'm the kind of guy that when he finds something really worthwhile, likes to tell people about it. So I wanted just a minute here to tell you about a line of Christ-centered clothing called God's Brand. I personally have several God's Brand items, pullovers, button-downs, a really nice quarter-zip fleece. They're stylish, and they help me represent my faith in everyday life. When you get a chance, check out godsbrand.com. They have all sorts of styles for almost any occasion. Again, they're at God's brand, all one word, dot com. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. Um, all right. Well, Rob, I, I want to get back to you have this cancer diagnosis prior to this conversation today. You've referenced your hospital stay a couple times, 
And I want to make yes. sure that we get into that. Yes. Okay, good. Good, good, good. So let me let me offer a little bit more background about myself. And one of the things that characterizes me from the earliest of ages, all the way back when I was three and I started learning how to play the violin, I like, uh, I trust myself the most. I like being by myself. I, I have no problems kind of doing my own thing. You know, if there's a huge project, I'll take it all on because I trust that I'm going to get it done the right way the first time. And so I'm, I'm kind of in that way as a very strong individualist. Um, and I'm perfectly satisfied living in a cave, reading my books and doing my own thing. Like that's, <laughs> that's totally all right by me. So long but trips over to, the ocean in a, a single passenger jet was okay. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, the alone time was, was perfectly fine. Uh, and it always has been, and it always probably will be. And so I had to, I had to learn how to, how to become a team player. And really, I mean, especially as a team leader, I had to learn how to come out of the comfort zone and to subordinate my individual interests to the good of the team, to leverage the team for, for the performance impact that it would have. So that was kind of a growth thing that I had to experience. But, you know, being alone, especially when there's a lot of pressure or there's a really tough time. That's the preference. And so I had and fully anticipated that when I went through this first surgery where they were going to take out a huge chunk of my lower colon, that I was going to have my own room. So just prior to the surgery, my wife and I were blessed a couple of days prior to the first big surgery where they were going to remove a huge chunk of my lower colon. This was the dangerous one. This had all kinds of negative implications to it. Um, my wife and I were blessed. We were able to, to sneak out. Um, and run down to Lourdes and do a pilgrimage um, to the grotto there in Lourdes, and oh, to wow. and to actually take a bath in the in the in the water that Saint Bernadette uh, uncovered there all the way back in the day, and so that was great. But we got back late. The French trains broke down. There was a big to do. We got stuck in Paris. We got back just in enough time to check into the hospital per the schedule. And so we're kind of running, kind of behind, open the door, and there's two beds in my room, and one of them's occupied. And the, the oh, occupant gosh. is this 85-year-old gentleman. He shares with me immediately. He's like, I'm so sorry. I asked for my own room. There's no space. I snore horribly. And I just <laughs> you to know that. <laughs> like, no, no. And just the combination of being late and the disruption and getting trapped and not having everything ready, and I had this big plan for saying goodbye to the kids – all that kind of fell apart. And I was so frustrated. I, I dropped off the luggage. I said something semi nice to the roommate guy, <laughs> grabbed Diane. We went across the street, went to this Italian restaurant, got a big old glass of red wine and just sat there. And I was grumbling. I mean, I was just an angry. I sounded like the dad from a Christmas story, you know, fighting against <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the heater downstairs. Yeah. Anyway. So we come back in and you know, it's sure enough. He, he snores of a storm and there's zero sleep prior to the biggest day of my life. And, uh, you know, then off he goes and then off I go and we have our surgeries. And now it's, it's day one post surgery and we're both lying there and, you know, we're, we're both in really bad shape. His surgery was, was much less significant in terms of its depth and gravity, but he was older. And so it, it was harder for him to recover potentially because mm -hmm. of the age factor. Right. In my case, really tough surgery, younger, relatively fit, things were good, but I had tubes sticking out of me and I had part of my intestine sticking out of my chest and, oh my and all these, I mean, it was, and, and, and these huge staples, just disgusting. 
it was just the whole thing was gross and nasty. It's a learning hospital. You've got these groups of 12 doctors coming by, you know, disrupting you constantly, opening up everything for everyone to see. And they're looking and they're poking and they're prodding. Ah, it was just horrible. Anyway, we have a, we have a brief lapse in the visits and, and he and I just start talking. We're talking in German. I speak German from when I was a little boy. My dad was stationed in German. I went to German school. So I speak German fluently, which was a blessing in that case because we're at downtown at a German hospital. And so he, you know, he, he, he just starts chit chatting with me to pass the time. And for whatever reason, Diane wasn't there. She was there for like 99% of my time in the hospital, but that time of that day, she wasn't there. And so, you know, he starts by asking me, so, you know, what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm a pilot. And, um, you know, we chit chat a bit. He's like, so what do you fly? I said, well, I fly F-22s. And I, I didn't used to volunteer that fact, you know, when I was overseas too much. It just wasn't something that people needed to know. And, you know, so I could tell that I was on some medication because of my, the immediacy of my response. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then he, he fires back. He's like, Hey, that's really interesting. I'm like, yeah, it is kind of interesting. That's a pretty cool airplane. He's like, you know, cause when I was a boy, I was in the Hitler youth and my job was to maintain or was to, to, to to work the anti-aircraft artillery battery in my village (laughs) to shoot down the bombers coming over the, over the Alps. And I I promise you guys, I've never been so alone in my life. All right. I mean, I, I was lying. I couldn't move. I was totally, helpless and i look at my roommate and this dude who's just matter of factly chatting with me is acknowledging that his job was to shoot down grandpa as a member of the hitler youth okay and right? it sounds a little wow. bit a little bit harsher in, in german and i'm just i cannot believe this and I, I know that i'm the only american on the eighth floor of this hospital and i'm thinking to myself how many you know how many how many bros do i have here you know, anywhere in the hospital, I'm, I'm basically coming up with potentially none. Like I'm, I'm just totally marooned here. Oh my gosh. Oh. All right. Felt just crushingly, absolutely a thousand billion percent alone. Okay. You know, <laughs> we, we continue to chat because there's nothing else to do. And I'm just trying to figure out how I can negotiate my way out of here and this hospital as fast as possible. Now we fast forward and it's about, two o'clock or so in the morning and I've hit my wits end. And one of the things about, about doing surgery, surgical procedures in Germany is that, um, they're not big into pain medication. We knew it going <laughs> oh, in. Geez. It's a, it's a cultural thing and it's just something. In fact, a lot of folks choose not to have their surgery, um, done off base or on the economy, as we put it, um, for that reason specifically. But I knew that I had found the best, potential surgeon and it was a great place for this particular procedure and so i was willing to give it a shot and i said i'm a tough guy you know if if they can do it i can do it well at two o'clock in the morning you know on day one i realized i wasn't that tough and this was too much for me to handle and my options at least in my mind were pull myself to the window and you know throw myself off this balcony or get some medicine and i opted for option b and so I Good. sucked up all my pride. I mean, I, I, I was in, I was in such excruciating wow. pain for about five hours before I hit the button, and finally I hit it. And um, and so the nurse comes in, and I could tell from her demeanor that I had kind of interrupted something. <laughs> so I'm, I made sure to use my best, highest form of German, and I smiled, 
And I said, Miss, you know, thank you so much for your prompt response. I, I'm so grateful for you and all that you do. And, you know, here's the bottom line. I want to die. This is so bad. I really could use some more medicine. And thank you so much in advance for helping me. <laughs> and she she responded uh, very quickly with, no, you're fine. Oh, Whoa. my gosh. And, oh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not this, and th- that was, it was such a horrible thing to hear. And so I came back and I said, Miss, you know, I, I know that, you know, it, it may seem hard to understand and maybe it's a sign of weakness or whatever, but I'm telling you that this is impossible to sustain any longer. I've done it for hours. My veins are all are, are popping because I've been grabbing onto the side of my bed so hard. I can't take this. Like, truly, just end it. Either get me the medicine or end it because this, what I'm living right now, this is impossible. I can't. And she said, nope. You're okay. No more medicine for you. Oh now, my goodness! I mean, this was this was a crushing defeat. Like, have you ever felt like you lost? This was that times a thousand. It was that bad, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I, that was heartbreaking. And all of a sudden, this voice chimes in from my right. <laughs> this this elderly voice <laughs> says, "Miss, uh, excuse me, but I I have to weigh in here. I've been watching this, and he said the words, young hero.'" suffer now for hours quietly and if he says that he can't take it anymore i would encourage you to listen to him uh please certainly there's something that you can do for him oh wow well, she she doesn't like this at all i mean now like you know her authority is being questioned and so she puts her hands on her hips and she basically says i've been doing this job for 27 years i know what he needs and what he doesn't he's not getting anything else and my roommate comes right back and says, Miss, I'm a former senior executive at Company X. And I assure you, I know all the decision makers in this hospital. If you don't immediately help him with some pain medicine, tonight will be your last night ever working here. Oh, and my goodness. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Like, I couldn't. I mean, I was just the whole thing was stunning. All right. Boom, boom. Like from one extreme to another. And within five minutes, I had another bag of morphine. And I could live again. And that's when I realized my roommate was my guardian angel for that phase of my life. He was there to help me through what was going to be the worst experience of my life. A person who at one point in his life would be the most unlikely guardian angel ever was one of my best teammates who provided some of the best mutual support that I've ever experienced ever on the planet. And I'm forever grateful to him for stepping in at that point, taking the risk and helping me out. We, I mean, we, we, we got along swimmingly after that. <laughs> I, I can imagine. <laughs> Day, night two, you're like, you know what? Your snoring is like the sound of violins. <laughs> yes, yes, snore away, my friend, because exactly. I'm still able to function only because of you. I mean, oh, truly, man. she was going to leave me like that, and I can't imagine how that would have ended, you I, know? It, oh. it was impossible. Oh, that's amazing. You just never know yeah. how the Lord is going to work through people. I mean, to, that's right. to, to, to be laying next to somebody who your initial connection is, you know, what can only be perceived as this, what should be great opposition, you know? Mm-hmm. And here you are, you know, hours later, post procedure, post agony, and who you thought might have been your you know, do the air quotes enemy is now your greatest ally. 
look, I mean, what a beautiful man. I mean, this, this gentleman, he, you know, he, he grew up where he grew up. Things were the way that they were. Right. He, none of that was by his choice. But who he became and what he did with his life was his choice. And he was a just a wonderful, caring um, gentleman. And so uh, I would never have scripted it this way. Uh, I certainly was shocked and surprised by the whole thing. But, you know, when when I finally... It was a couple of days later that a room came open and I was wheeled out into my own place, which was the answer to my initial prayers. Right. Um, you know, we were we were actually a little bit sad to say goodbye. And he wrote a beautiful uh, goodbye note. They released him first. And um, it was just a really meaningful card. And it was just so it was just so good, which which tells me that at our core, you know, regardless of where we're coming from, regardless of our life experiences, we can choose who it is we want to be and, and, and where we want to be. And we're really, I mean, the, the instinct is to be good. And that guy was great that night. He was just absolutely great that night. And I'm so, I'll, I'll forever be thankful that I had him as my roommate. And I'm thankful to the good Lord for setting this whole thing up, which was totally counter to anything that I would have set up for myself. Right. Um, you know, in other words, his will was, was done and it was so much better than anything that I could have ever imagined. Well, right, because if you had, let's say the prayer was answered the way you had written it, you would have been by yourself. Yes, and I would moment. have been totally helpless in that moment. Yeah. Totally helpless. Uh, well, that's that's a fantastic story. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Rob. <laughs> I wasn't sure, you know, like only cryptically had you mentioned well, I had a roommate who was German, you know, and I was like, I don't know where this is going. And I told Jeff, I was like, I don't know. There's something about a roommate. Yeah, <laughs> so. there's absolutely something about a roommate. Now, and I'll, I'll also finish with this. You know, that nurse was doing her job the way that she was. That's that right. She interpreted her training to be, and I, you know, I hold no grudges at all. You know, I'm very every day. I thank the good Lord for putting me in that hospital and for the great caregivers who took care of me. Um, but it was just one of those, you know, differing opinions of how to apply the rules. And, uh, and my great roommate, he helped us reevaluate that. And <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, that was awesome. Yeah. Thank, thanks for sharing that. You know, you look back Absolutely. and you, re you reflect on all these experiences you have had. And God has certainly revealed himself as he does with all of us in so many unique ways and oftentimes right in the moment of what is taking place it's difficult to see you know and understand the lord's presence but what you have been witness to a number of occasions involving the lord's goodness and thank god that you have made it through many of these challenges in life because his earthly kingdom is certainly in a much better place because you are here and you are proactively serving God and loving the Lord and loving everything he has blessed you with and has blessed your wife and your children with and frankly blessed all of us. I mean, Rob, we can't thank you enough for authentically opening up and just pouring your heart out this morning. Well, look, Jeff, uh, I can't thank you and Jim enough for capturing what it is that you're capturing and sharing it with the world so that folks that are out there struggling recognize that they're not alone and that there is 
so much more to this life than than what hits us on a daily basis. And I think that's the most impressive kind of work to be doing, much more so than than flying airplanes around the sky and um, and doing those kinds of things. I mean, that was important, but this this has eternal significance that you're speaking to. And so I'll leave you with this, if I may. Well, um, I still have one more it, question for you, Rob, before you leave us. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Please. Sorry. We're in the middle of, I mean, you guys were doing such a great job wrapping up, I didn't want to interrupt you. But <laughs> I promised uh, some listeners uh, that have spoken to me directly, and they have noted that here are people sharing these encounters with the Lord. And what they noted is that they have not uh, recognized uh, in such a clear way how God has acted in their lives. And so I said, you know what? From now on, what I want to do is ask each of our guests. And so I'm beginning with you. You are our initial uh, subject here. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend for someone who wants to see God's presence or wants to hear God more clearly in their life? What would you recommend for them? To not be as dense as I was. <laughs> All right? I mean, it, truly, if you think about it, I had been praying every day of my life for, for things. You know, hey, help me get through pilot training. Help me to be number one. Help me to win this award. Help me to do that. And, uh, you know, and all those things, they all took place pretty much the way that I had asked for them. When they happened, I saw it as the result of my achievement. And I never, I mean, I was not in the habit of being grateful. Right. I, I, I seriously wasn't. And I just kind of said, oh, look at that. You put in the effort, you win, da, 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 move on to the next challenge. It took, in my case, unfortunately, having my lower colon ripped out to fully appreciate everything that has been playing out in my life, meaning that I was just too stubborn to understand all the beautiful things that the good Lord was doing for me. And so it took something very significant to kind of get me truly back on track. So to, to those who are asking this question, you know, just open your eyes a little bit and, and you'll see it. You'll truly see it. I mean, to me, cancer was a tremendous blessing. If I could rewrite the story, it would it would include everything that I've experienced, all the pain, all the suffering, all the you know giving up of things that I really hold dear. I'm not flying fighter aircraft anymore because I can't. I had to quit my career early because mm-hmm. I couldn't continue on, et cetera. And all of that is so much better than if I had stayed on my path. And that was this. And so your question is tied to the thing that I was about to say to Jeff, which is these days, I don't ask for like a, a pain free, you know, perfect, nothing bad happens existence. I, I pay for the strength to handle whatever it is that I'm going to have to deal with, that Diane's going to have to deal with, that our children are going to have to deal with, that we're going to deal with about them, et cetera, because I see that. All of these things are there for a reason and that the, the eternal perspective says it's all good. Amen. What we see is the, you know, t- today's big struggle and catastrophe and, oh my gosh, why is this happening to me? There's probably a great reason for it. And so, you know, it's as easy as it is to say when you're not in the midst of it. Yeah. I'm just asking for the strength to get through it so that I can see it for the good that it was. And that's kind of the new, that's my new approach. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Blazing Bush Podcast. Be sure and check out our website at blazingbush.com, as well as follow and like Blazing Bush on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, God bless. Mm-hmm.